Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. In our culture, it's taboo to talk about money. You don't ask another person how much money they make, or how much their possessions cost, or how much they have in the bank. That's especially true in publishing. Writers, especially successful ones, don't usually talk openly about money. But they should. People should know the kind of money writers actually make. Readers should know whether or not they're supporting an exploitative industry. And aspiring writers should know how much or how little they'll realistically earn. We're not doing this to scare you away from writing. We just think it's better to have a realistic idea of the industry you're getting into so that you don't get blindsided. And joining us for this episode on money is returning champion and third Canadian in a row, Simon McNeil! Woo! Ah, the maple syrup invasion commences. <laughs> yeah, we had a holy trinity of Canadians, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I'm really excited for the Marigold. That's that's definitely going high up my to-read list, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Extremely good. So why don't we get into it and start off by talking about how much writers make and how do you get paid in writing? Because if you're a writer, a writer of nonfiction usually, or, or fiction, it's not like a regular job where you get an hourly salary. Now, for some very strange reason, people who aren't writers have... A bizarre belief that writing is a good way to make money. <laughs> I don't know where people are getting this idea. I guess they all see Stephen King, and then they don't see anybody else. And there's just one Stephen King. There's a small handful of people who get rich on writing, and a whole lot of people who don't. Maybe an equivalent would be like playing a sport. There's a couple of people who make a lot of money playing sports, and then there's most people d do not manage to make it into the NBA, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Most people who play basketball are not going to make millions of dollars by playing basketball. <laughs> most people, the most money you will make playing basketball is if you bet $5 with your friends, who will win? <laughs> that's, as, that's as much as you're getting. Yeah. So as far as how much writers make, the answer is not very much for the most part. Now, there's there's a few different pay structures in play depending on the type of fiction that's being written so, or the type of work that's being written. So if you're writing novels, you'll generally get either an advance or no advance, depending on the size of the publisher. And then you'll receive royalties on the volumes that they sell from there on out until the book goes out of print. Those royalties are usually a certain percentage of the amount of money that the publisher receives for the book when it's, when it's sold. And... There's a whole lot of stuff there where publishers can end up getting burned as, you know, with books that aren't sold can be returned to the publishers and then the publishers don't actually get any money for those and then the author doesn't get paid. So that whole thing ends up kind of passing the risk back to the author as well, to a certain extent. Publishers certainly assume some, but not necessarily all. Yeah. Now, then if you're, if you're dealing with magazines, then sometimes it's on a per word basis and then other times it's on a per article basis. That, that's where I have the most experience. I've written a lot for magazines because I've done a lot of nonfiction. And there's quite a few contracts there where they might have a certain word limit that's set, but where you're not actually being paid for words. You're being paid, well, this is how much you get for an article. Right. And then, of course, short fiction is usually paid on a, a, word, a per word basis. Yeah. Sometimes some very small publications will have a flat fee 
or usually a token payment where they're like, we wish we could pay you more, but we're not making any money either. So we will give you $10 and two copies of the magazine. <laughs> and that's what you're getting. One thing that has been a problem, and this, is, this isn't this is really the fault of these tiny little semi-pro magazines or anything like this, um, but this is what's happening with pro rates, is that pro rates haven't kept up with inflation. So no. on short fiction, for instance, back in the mid-30s, so just, just a little less than 100 years ago, a short fiction author selling to a magazine at pro rates would probably get between a half a cent and a cent per word. Now, these days, you're looking more like around nine cents per word for pro rates. But in order for it to keep up with the rates that had been set, like just to keep up with inflation with the rates that had been set in the 30s, we'd have to be looking at rates in between 11 and 22 cents per word for pro rates. So I can't think of a single sci-fi fantasy mag that pays 22 cents per word. Yeah. And that's the same as far as purchasing power as one cent per word was in 1935. Yeah. What is the official pro rate? Is it nine cents as set by SFWA? Yes, I believe it's nine cents at at the current moment. Right. Right. Yeah. So try and think of how it would even remotely be possible to survive as a short sci-fi fantasy speculative fiction author on a a pay rate of eight or nine cents per word, considering how much, how many words a month you'd have to churn out, and then how many venues actually pay that much, because there aren't very many pro-rate sci-fi fantasy magazines left. There's very, very few of them. Most of them, including a lot of the ones that make the Hugo and Nebula Awards, pay semi-pro. Maybe you'll get five cents a word. Maybe you'll get four cents a word. <laughs> exactly. And and this is also led to another problem as far well, as let me how do a we... little bit of math oh, actually sorry. let's think let's think let me whip out my calculator like how much money do you think per month you'd need to make just as a freelancer as a freelancer well i mean it depends on where I mean, you're as living freelancer, you're, yeah depending on where you're living but i don't know let's yeah. say let's assume forty thousand dollars a year well yeah i mean if you're living in a city you're going to be at least going through that and yeah yeah and if you're a freelancer you're paying higher taxes than a regular employee would Exactly. So let's say 40000 and this is living quite modestly, so $40,000 a year divided by 12. So you'd need to make, let's say, $3,300 a month. How do you make 33 that a month on eight cents a word? How many words do you need to write a month? Oh, my goodness. It would be a you lot. You would need to write and publish 41,600 words a month in short fiction yeah. magazines. I can't fucking do that. Even if I could churn out 40,600 words a month of publishable prose, there are not enough speculative fiction magazines that are taking that Mm -hmm. at once. They're not going to let you run more than one story per issue. Exactly. And very often they'll ask you to wait. If if they publish one of your stories in one issue, they probably won't want another one from you in the next issue just because they don't want to publish the same guy over and over again. They want a little more variety. So it's really not possible to survive just by writing short speculative fiction. Just, you can't. Now, I will say with writing with magazines, sometimes you can get people who are freelancers who have effectively got a column. That's usually people who can be expected to consistently turn in copy. But magazines is a bit of a different game because it's nonfiction. And even there, it's become increasingly difficult to make a living. Like There's a reason that I write magazine articles as a side to my career. And this kind of gets into where part of the problem is in figuring out how much authors make, which is that 
for a very long time, even going back into the 30s, um, when pay, pay was a lot better, you didn't make enough money as an author to live without doing something else too, whether it was clerking or teaching or working in management or having a rich spouse. Most yep. authors had some other source of income that wasn't their writing. And that's absolutely the same now. I have a day job. You have a day job, right? Oh, yes. Carlo has a day job. Pretty much any of us in the right good Discord have day jobs. There are award-winning published novelists who have day jobs. It is normal to have a day job. Anyone who thinks that you're not a serious writer if you have a day job is a fucking idiot. Kafka had a day job. William Carlos Williams had a day job. If you don't have a, a day job then either you're you're doing some kind of freelance thing on the side or you have a sugar daddy. There's no other way <laughs> to pay the rent as a writer yep. without doing something else on the side. And I think yeah. back in the day, you could maybe have a part-time job to fill in the gaps. These days, you really need a full-time job because part-time jobs aren't keeping up with inflation and, and the cost of living either, for the most part. And so back in around, I believe it was 2018, the Authors Guild in the States decided to actually do some research about how much people were actually making from, making from writing. And so th- this was because most of the statistics that were available of author income was total income of authors, including those side hustles. And if you look right. at those median statistics, people look like they're doing okay because the median is around the middle class range. But that's including all those other jobs that people are doing. And then when the Authors Guild actually pared back all that stuff and looked just at income that people get from being writers, the median income for a writer right now is $20,000.300. And that's for a full-time writer? Yes. Oh, God. That's not great. No. <laughs> it's not yeah, great at you, all. You cannot survive on that. You, Nope. Mm-hmm. No. Unless you live in a shed. And even then. Rent and, and, and like, is probably pretty expensive right now. <laughs> yeah, they, they call them tiny homes. You just have to put some nice yeah, pine the tiny on the houses. <laughs> they put it. They 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 furnish it in millennial gray and charge fifteen hundred dollars a month. I don't know. But yeah, it's 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 basically at this point got to the point where what I would be telling somebody if if they want to be a writer, then what they're saying is that they want to be a teacher at least. Yeah. In my case, I have a desk job in civil service that gives me a fair bit of downtime and doesn't stress me out or drain my energy because there's I, I could not teach and write at the same time. Teaching requires so much mental energy that I don't have enough left for writing. So I have a, a mindless drone bureaucrat job that takes up absolutely none of my emotional or spiritual energy. <laughs> so I can put that into writing when I have the time. And it's frustrating because it means I can't spend as much writing as I'd use as I'd like to. And I don't publish stories very often. If I get one short story out a year, I'm pretty happy. And I'll see other writers who are like, oh yeah, I just here are the three sto- short stories I published this month. Here here I came out with a new novel in the past six months. I'm like, mm-hmm. how the fuck do they do that? Oh, they don't have day jobs. How can they afford not to have day jobs? Question mark. Because well, there's, a, I mean, there's this other side to writing, which is there are a lot of successful writers who have some kind of wealth, a, a well-to-do spouse with a good job, or they come from a wealthy family and they're not really open about that. 
Yep. Or they're broke. That's the other possibility. I, I yeah, know I knew some people in Toronto who were great writers who I loved and they had made a career out of writing and they did not have two pennies to their name. Yeah. And that was basically what that was basically the deal they had is they they lived as frugally as they could and it allowed them to be a full time artist. Yeah. But <laughs> is that really what we want for our artists? Yeah, I I get deeply, deeply depressed when I see a Kickstarter for medical bills for an artist or writer I like, especially yeah. someone with name recognition. It's really disturbing to see, an, say, a, a writer, a novelist who's quite successful and who's maybe gotten awards and who's quite well known, a, a, a recognizable name, having to beg on the internet to pay medical bills. That's bleak, man. Yeah, it's 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 really frustrating, and it's seeming like it's becoming more common, not less. And I think that's yeah. because that Authors Guild study was from before the pandemic. Oh, and things haven't gotten better since then for anybody. They sure haven't. Now, there's only one area in writing that seems, or at least used to be, a good way to make money, which was to churn out smut. But even people who churn out smut don't make as much money anymore thanks to Amazon squeezing Kindle Unlimited authors like crazy. There was a woman who was kind of famous for writing Bigfoot abduction porn, and she was making like $30,000 a month or something like that writing Bigfoot abduction porn. And it was going really well for her. And then Amazon changed its policies on content, on what kind of content you could publish on Kindle Unlimited, and also changed the type of pay structure. Now, the way it works is that there's one predetermined pool every month of money, and each Amazon Kindle author gets a share, like a percentage of the pool, depending on how many pages of their work has been read. Not even how many times has your book been downloaded, but how many pages, because Kindle tracks the number of pages that yeah. the readers have read. If 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 you if you if your reader only half finishes the book, you only get paid for half of that book. That's that is just horrific. Honestly, it is I mean, brutal. So the the money's really drained out of that a, a whole lot. It it's a lot harder to make. There are people who do manage to bring in a good bit, but. Again, you've really, really, really got to pump it out really fast. As far as I can tell, the only way to really make a comfortable living as a writer is to get a right-wing billionaire fail son to sponsor your weird <laughs> conservative diatribes, but make sure not to write about dicks too much or you'll get dumped like Rod Dreher was. <laughs> so for those of you who are less online, Rod Dreher is or was a very strange very fucking weird little man who has a, a very conservative, religious conservative column. And um, for a long time, he had some some billionaires just sponsoring his lifestyle, paying him six figures a year to write this column. But the guy finally dumped him for just being too goddamn weird. And the thing that broke the camel's back was he wrote a column about circumcision and about staring at an uncircumcised boy's penis and i'm gonna i'm gonna quote this from the roger column that got him dropped all us boys wanted to stare at his primitive root wiener when we were at the urinal during recess because it was monstrous nobody told us that wieners could look like that and finally mm -hmm. finally it was at this column that the billionaire failson said <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna pay for this anymore dude 
I don't know what that's, you're doing. That's painful. Which that is just inc- truly incredible. Truly. So Oof. you can get money for being like a weird right wing guy. Just don't write about dicks too much. Yeah, <laughs> so. I mean, Jordan Peterson's testing the limits of that right now. Um, he sure <laughs> is. My God. But yeah, no, it's I don't think anybody's doing too well these days. And that seems to include the chuds. Um, yeah, I just wanted to bring something up about advances. Yeah. If you get yeah, an advance, yeah. don't don't expect a giant deal like a really common advance, a decent advance these days might be five thousand dollars. That's right. And if you're dealing little, with small press, yeah, it might not be. Even, even if you're even if you're dealing with a bigger press, there's a structure. You don't get all that money at once. Mm-hmm. So exactly. On a previous episode, we interviewed Gretchen Felker Martin, who got a really good advance from from Tor for Manhunt. She got a fifty thousand dollar advance, and like that's awesome. But. That $50,000 is distributed in four payments across four years. Mm-hmm. So that's it, that advance is making her about $12,000 a year. Yeah. Which you can't live on that. No, you really can't. Gretchen, Gretchen does not have a day job, but she hustles and does a shitload of other things. A lot of freelancing. She has a Patreon. She, she hustles a hell of a lot. So it's not like she's kind of hanging out painting her nails she works constantly she just kind of works on her own schedule and that is something i don't think i could do because i want the security of a job where i know how much money i'm going to make next month yeah the full-time artists that i knew also were some of the hardest working people i ever knew yeah like i i I can't fucking deal i can't do it yeah they weren't broke because they weren't trying they were broke because the system set up in a way that exploits artists yeah and it's gotten worse over the years. We've experienced uh, a lot of writers have talked about this. A lot of novelists have talked about this, the death of the mid list. So a lot of publishers have a sort of blockbuster mentality, kind of like the big movie studios do. It used to be you'd have your big blockbuster authors and then a lot of tiny indie authors, but in the middle you'd have what was called the mid list. People who didn't sell a ton of books, but they could they reliably turned out a decent profit. They reliably sold a decent number of copies and more and more books, publishers are kind of ignoring the mid list, not really putting the effort into pro- into promoting the mid list authors and letting it go. And that's drying up. And instead, publishers are focusing all their energy and promotion, all their resources into selling the books that they think will be a mega hit. Mm-hmm. And I think that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you put more resources into promoting a book, obviously it'll be more likely to succeed. And what's determining what you think will be the successful book? Well, I'm sure a lot of bias goes into that. I'm I'm not all biased, but I'm sure a lot of bias and favoritism and shit goes into that. Well, you know what else is happening, though, is I'm seeing the start of a trend where publishers are picking up self-published books and then buying up the rights and, and printing their own run. And in that case, what they're doing is they're literally waiting for the author to show that they can sell the book anyway, and then just inserting themselves and saying, hey, we'll give you some legitimacy. So the writer's got to fucking do everything to start off. Yeah. The publisher's not doing all that much. It's it's bleak. <laughs> it's bleak. And I, I hope someday it'll change, just as I, I get the feeling that in cinema, it looks like we're having the first hints of maybe mid-budget movies coming back. That Which would be, be nice. wonderful. I I fucking love mid budget is where the magic is. So yeah. it, this doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be like this forever, but that's what it's like now. 
And part of what's going to change it is people actually trying to make changes. Yeah. Ultimately, it's going to be up to writers and and other artists in the in the publishing industry to start pushing and saying, no, we deserve more. Yeah. So we'll get to that uh, later, but yeah. we'll get to that near the end. But at the moment, yeah, I got my wind up talk- there. <laughs> we've, we've talked about the profit well, or lack thereof of a writing career. Let's talk a little bit about the cost of succeeding in a writing career. So writing, publishing as an industry, unfortunately, despite a lot of talk about diversity and inclusion, very much favors people who come from affluent backgrounds. Very, very much. And again, that's not saying it's impossible to make it, but it sure helps us a lot. Like MFA programs, those, even if they're not, even if you're getting a scholarship, keep in mind you're sacrificing two years of earning potential is not necessarily easy to do. I'm going to focus more on genre writing just because that's my wheelhouse and that's what I'm more familiar with. But in sci-fi fantasy publishing, there are a a group of workshops that, while they don't guarantee success, they sure do help. People who attend these workshops are a hell of a lot more likely to get a Hugo or a Nebula award. They do have a slight edge in getting published I know of at least one person who went to one of these workshops and got a Tor book deal out of it because an editor, an acquiring editor at Tor Publishing was also at that workshop and they made friends. So they're ways, really useful ways to network and to get to know people and kind of maybe skip past the slush pile to the secret submission portal where a venue that seems like it's closed is actually getting people or maybe it'll be easier to get an agent if you've been to one of these. But here are some of the big workshops in sci-fi fantasy. There's Clarion and Clarion West. Those are six-week-long summer workshops. They cost $5,000. And to me, the cost of tuition isn't the biggest thing, but the loss of six weeks of work. Most of us cannot afford to take six weeks paid vacation. Most jobs do not offer six weeks paid vacation. This is America. It's hard to get maternity leave. For six weeks, much less, you know, can I go to nerd summer camp? I've, I've spoken to some people who've attended it and I asked like, how did you do it? What did you do? How did you get the time off work? And they said, I quit my job. And I was like, well, most people can't afford to just sort of quit their job. Just like, whatever. Mm-hmm. That is a big deal. And, and while there may be some people who are among that, that full-time artist set that I was mentioning before, who also attend these workshops. Yeah. Um, What's happening is they're eating ramen for six months to be able to afford the tuition. And that's with a scholarship. Yeah. And, and I don't and think so it's, that's, it's shitty sorry, to ask ahead. someone to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Especially since that's just kind of feeding up the pipeline a little bit back to more successful yeah. and established writers or towards editors and publishers. And I can't stress enough, these do confer an advantage. Arlie Sorg did a column about this in... An issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, I think a year or two ago, it was called By the Numbers. And he found that over the past four years, from between one third and two thirds of the slots in the finalists of nominations for the Nebulas and Hugos were to Clarion and Clarion Westgrads. Like a full third to two thirds in some years. Yeah. And that's a wildly disproportionate 
amount. I mean, Clarion takes like, what, 12 people a year? There are thousands of SFF writers scribbling away. At the very least, you could say there are hundreds getting published. So that is a massive disproportionate amount. And he only looked at Clarion and Clarion West. He didn't look at some of the others, which includes Odyssey, uh, which is, that one's online, so it's more accessible. It's online now, and I think it's like $2,000 now uh, for a few weeks. And then Viable Paradise. Viable Paradise is one week. So, you know, that is doable to get a vacation, Mm -hmm. a week of paid vacation. However, the tuition for this one week is $2,450. And you must also pay housing fees. Housing is available for about $300 a night. So So, that's not including the hotel. Yeah, that housing is not included. You got to pay extra. And uh, yeah, that's a lot of fucking money. Yeah, that's, I mean that is a lot of fucking money. That's 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 stretching the word viable a little bit. <laughs> it's not viable for most people. It's not viable yeah, for I me. Mean, and and I think like it's nothing against authors collaborating or working together to build their craft. Certainly nothing against mentorship. Those yeah. are all good things. The concern is just how how these cost barriers are created and how those are used basically to to kind of funnel money out of starting writers. And these are in ways that aren't going to show up in writer beware. These aren't the open scams. These are part of no. the culture that's been established. No. And and I want to stress, consider the fact that people of marginalized backgrounds are going to have less wealth than people of privilege. On average, women have less money than men. People of color have less money than white people. Queer people have less money than straight people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you're doing this kind of financial gatekeeping, you are effectively, as, as, as a side effect, also making it harder for diverse writers to succeed. I've looked at photos of the Viable Paradise workshops from year to year. You know, here's the face of the graduating class, and they're overwhelmingly white. And, overwhelmingly white. And I'll bet you they're also overwhelmingly degree holders as well, which creates all mm-hmm. kinds of class barriers, too. Massive, massive class barriers. Mm -hmm. And that's no good. And it's especially frustrating for me to see it in an industry that touts itself as new and improved and we celebrate diversity and hashtag own voices. Well, okay, but only if you're rich. And, And on top of that, on top of these workshops, there are also writing retreats and also conventions in geek circles in sci fi fantasy. You're more likely to sort of succeed if you're part of the community and to be part of the community it really helps to go to conventions and again that costs money not just con fees but you're paying for a hotel for a couple of nights maybe you have to pay to travel maybe you have to buy a a plane ticket or something i published my novel i published my novel with a small press that i met at a pitching session that they set up at a convention Mm -hmm. now these are great people but like that's just if you're not part of the community then you wouldn't even know that they were looking for people yeah and conventions aren't cheap no they're not i mean they're not it's a whole ass vacation yeah when i was going to conventions and living in toronto that was my big vacation for a lot of those years was going to a hotel in markham yeah i went this past summer i went to necronomicon and you know, I shared a hotel room with some people and I, I didn't really go crazy, but like, holy fucking shit. It, it punched me in the wallet pretty goddamn hard. Yeah. These become really important networking events, especially, and those are especially important if you can't afford to go to things like workshops and retreats. 
because yeah. these are the places where you'll find the professionals and make the connections you need to actually get an agent or get a publisher because yeah, and I can't a lot of stress these... enough how much help the connections help with getting published too. They really and do. getting it's mentorship, much... getting people to help you kind of beef up your writing, getting people who will, who will place your writing in their publications. Mm-hmm. It's very much a referral based industry. So Absolutely. you're, you're going to get referred to somebody and then they'll pay attention to you. When it comes to awards, it's really, really chummy. It's groups of friends voting for each other. You don't need many votes to get on the Hugo ballot. There are there are items on Hugo ballots with like 12 nominations. That's a yep. tiny amount. That's you and your clarion buddies. That's all it fucking takes. And I, I really can't stress enough how much of a click it creates. The attendees of the 33rd Clarion West workshop actually got matching tattoos wow they yeah i swear to fuck because uh one person who attended was complaining about it later and they went on this long twitter thread talking about how it was kind of an unhealthy isolating environment and felt like it was supposed to create a herd mentality and then in one tweet they mentioned and so i've been removing the workshops matching tattoo and i'm like what <laughs> so yeah they got matching oh, tattoos and because it was the 33rd annual clarion west workshop they got the alchemical symbol for the 33rd element on the periodic table which happened to be arsenic i feel like when you and and the rest of your class are like getting an arcane occult symbol for poison tattooed on your bodies to match you're an occult now man yeah this is not normal behavior this is this is weird that's pretty wild i will say that um but but That's I mean like crazy. Th- th- there are also even even more healthy versions. So back when I was living in Toronto and uh, living in Culture City is going to come up a lot. That's where oh, I yeah. met everybody I know. Yeah, living um, in a Culture City is another one. Like yeah. so much of publishing is still in New York City, which is wildly unaffordable. Mm-hmm. New York City is obscenely expensive, and I understand that Toronto is is just absurdly expensive. Oh now, too. yeah, there's a reason I live in PEI. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> my my work is remote. I, I work from a home office, and uh, so I could potentially live in Toronto if I could afford to. I'm well paid by my day job, so when I say yeah. I can't afford to, I mean, <laughs> I don't even know how a lot of people do it at all. Yeah. But that's where you'll find readings and colloquia and conventions and all those other things that let authors get to know each other, that let authors get to know editors and publishers. My my critique group, who are some of my best friends to this day, I still stay in touch with them all the time. I met them at the Cheriscura Reading Series, which was a series of horror readings that were being held by a publisher in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. Living in a culture city is how you get to know people. Otherwise, you're basically just stuck with Twitter. And that's not the easiest way to get to know people. Which is not great for very obvious reasons. It's not good. No. I mean, it really is. I, I, I have made, a, I genuinely have made a lot of really great connections via social media, but that's tough and you got to be careful because so much of, of social media of so-called book Twitter is really fucking awful. It is a, it is a sewer. <laughs> it is terrible. It is really, really bad. And it's kind of hard to do and you've got to, being that online is not great for your brain either. And, no, it oh, really gosh. isn't. It's and wild though. It's so it's it drives me crazy how much effort people in put into hiding 
the fact that they get connections, we still want to pretend that publishing is a meritocracy when it's clearly not. And I feel like my favorite example of it is that of Sam Sykes. So Sam Sykes is a fantasy writer, I think, who got canceled for being a sex pest or something like that. But he he was interviewed because he had a story in it's called the Dragon Book Anthology. So I'm just going to I'm just I'm just going to quote from this from this interview. Here's the interviewer. You have a story in the recent The Dragon Book Anthology that you co-wrote with Diana uh, Gabaldon, who's like a well-to-do, well-known editor in the industry. How does a young, as-yet-unpublished author find themselves working with one of the most successful names in the industry? What was the process like working with Diana? And here's Sam's response. We have the same agent. It was quite a fun process. Mrs. Gabaldon has an immense amount of talent and clout, and it was quite an honor to work with her for as much as we did. Okay, so, secret, um, Diana Gabaldon is his mother. Hold on, Diana Gabaldon Sam Sykes' mother? Yeah. My goodness, I did not know that. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, like, that blows my mind. We have the same agent. Mrs. Gabaldon. <laughs> Mrs. Gabaldon, goodness. that's your mom! That's your mom! <laughs> Mrs. My Mommy and I have the same age. Motherfucker. Wow. Motherfucker, you little Nepo baby. You little, the Aragon guy is a Nepo baby too. There are a lot, there are a lot of Nepo babies. Yeah. A lot of Nepo babies. Yeah. I, weren't his parents like publishers? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's frustrating because I've seen his, his book get, tout, his success get touted as like a rags to riches. Anyone can do it. You know, inspiring story. It's like, no, his, his parents were publishers. That's how we could get a book deal at 15. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to a certain extent, the arts is always going to be the arts. and There is some, you know, yeah. who you know is them and certainly some family connectionism in the arts because the people who are nuts enough to actually get into the job are usually people who come up from within it in some way, shape or form. Like my dad was a painter. Yeah. Um, he's retired now, but uh, it just makes it that much harder if you're coming in new, because yeah. that's, that's what you're going to be facing is that sort of people who know the rules kind of come from within to a certain extent, or they literally have family who can give them a helping hand or, or close friends mm -hmm. from school. So just keep in mind that that social element is if you're looking to get into writing, it's going to be a key part of your career and networking is going to be a big part of your job. There's a reason yeah. why one of the big jobs that a lot of authors take as as their main work is marketing. And that's partially yeah. because marketing has a lot of money, but partially because they're already doing all the networking stuff that marketers have to do as well. Can Why don't we talk a little bit about what it means to be a hack or to sell out? Because we've been talking about money. And the realities of it. And I've definitely seen some, I don't know, I've definitely seen discussion about selling out, about being a hack, so on and so forth. On the one hand, there can be a real naivete to the idea of like, oh, you're selling out? Like, yeah, I need to fucking eat. You know, it is a very 90s, old-fashioned idea that there's something wrong with you for selling your your values in exchange for money. But on the other hand, I do think there is a sort of value in art integrity, right? So what is the difference between work? Let's say, what is the difference between working for money and being a hack? Because you and I, we write in exchange for money. I mean, we don't yeah. write just to make money because we're not 
crazy enough to think like, I can make a living off of this. We write and then we get some money in exchange for it sometimes when yep. the planets are aligned. Yep. But I don't think I could, re we could really call e either of us a hack. No, nah, I mean, I, I, I don't publish anywhere near frequently enough to be a hack, I don't think. No. Um, so I, I, think to line? <laughs> I think to a certain extent, it's a matter of the question being whether you're taking money for the art that you want to make because it's the art you want to make or whether you're taking money for art that you've made explicitly because it's what will sell best. It's it's the question of whether you're deliberately commodifying your own work, basically. Yeah. Like that, that, that's where I would draw that line. You know, like Kevin Feige is a hack. Yeah. That fucker doesn't care about the quality of the movies he produces. He just cares about selling as much as he can. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where I put it is like, I, I don't I want artists to be able to eat, but I don't want the art that they produce to determine the extent they're able to eat. I don't like it being commodified. I like it being the good benefit of having artists in society is that you get art. I think when, when you've got people that at least kind of carry that in their hearts a bit, they're, even if they're going after money, even if they're trying to get that bag, that's fine. They're, they're still making what they, they would make regardless. They're just trying to get paid for it. It's when you, it's when you care more about getting paid than making art that you care about. Yeah. And you care almost entirely about getting paid and about yeah. art. And, I, and I'm not going to blame any artist for doing that every once in a while. I know a lot of really great filmmakers have a one for me, one for you mentality. Uh, Guillermo del Toro has done that for a long time. He would go back and forth between Mexico and the United States. Mm -hmm. And in the USA, he'd make a low budget, schlocky, kind of stupid movie in order to get enough money to fund a project that he would work on in Mexico and then make an actually good movie that was really meaningful to him in Mexico. So he'd make some kind of trashy schlock in the USA and then go somewhere else and then make like the devil's backbone or like a legit really fucking great movie that was meaningful to him. And I, I don't blame a person for doing that. Um, I, mm -hmm. I have heard the argument that selling out that talking about selling out is an idea of privilege because you know, if you can afford to keep your your integrity, then obviously you're not on the verge of starvation. If 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 you're willing to turn down the expectation of money, then maybe you're not that desperate. But I don't know. I, I I'm not sure I totally buy that because on the other hand, like who's more likely to get bought out? And it's probably someone from a well-to-do background. I feel like it would be easier for like a cishead white guy to become a hack. Just because who's going to give who's someone's got to offer you the money and they're more likely to offer someone like that money, you know? The other thing is I'm not likely to give somebody who is struggling to live shit for being a hack. It's it, like saying, oh, this art isn't perfectly authentic. That's that's not the worst thing you can say to a person. And while I might have a lot of scorn for rich guys who have monetized yeah. the arts, if you're somebody who's just barely getting by and you're doing commissions for stuff that you don't really love just because it, it pays the bills. That's, that's, you know, that's the, fine. You do what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think there is a big difference in whether you're wealthy and whether you're surviving and also what's your attitude for it. If you're extremely sensitive about being called a hack when you're doing hack work, I have no fucking respect for you. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're open about it, like uh, oh, Michael Caine, he was so fucking funny. This British actor, Michael Caine, he's done a lot of hack movies for money. And he doesn't pretend that he's – he doesn't get mad when you call him a hack, though. He was 
famously interviewed about his part in Jaws the Revenge, which is an infamously terrible movie. And someone asks him, have you even seen Jaws the Revenge? And he says, his answer was, I haven't seen it, but I have seen the house it bought. And it's very nice. And I, I I do respect that attitude. I I think it's just when someone's a hack and doesn't want to own up to it and gets really, really mad when you accuse them of that. Like, how dare you? Yeah, I mean, I'm no different from you. You're writing for money, too. It's like, yeah, but I'm writing good stuff for money. You're writing shit. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's kind of like, and that's, to, use, to use a very yeah. un-PC analogy, it's the difference between moving in with your partner so that, you know, it's cheaper you can afford to pay the bills and when you're living together and married people will talk about finances and exchange finances and chances are one person earns more money than the other so that the bigger earner is probably gonna have to spend more money on rent and and bills and shit like that it's the difference between handling finances with your loving partner versus like stuffing money into a stripper's g-string both of these relationships involve money both of these relationships involve sexuality, but in one instance, it's purely transactional, and in the other instance, there's like a meaningful, loving relationship involved. That, I think, is the difference between being a writer who sells your work versus being a hack. And this kind of gets back to something a bit more positive about why we put up with all this nonsense and, and write anyway, and, and that's because it's about love. And if, if you're going to get into this business, if you're going to become a writer, do it because you need to write, because you love to write, because it's this thing that you're going to do regardless of if you get paid for it or not. And if you can get paid for it, that's great. But yeah, you can find better ways to make a buck. Yeah, don't, don't go into writing for money. Even if you go in there with the hopes of, I'm going to sell out and make lots of money, I'm going to figure out a way to beat the system and a way to follow the algorithms and make a lot of money. I've definitely seen previews for YouTube channels promising, here's how you can make tons of money, right? On Amazon, Kindle Unlimited, your chances of success are still incredibly low. And to me, there's nothing sadder than trying desperately to sell out when no one's fucking buying. Because now you've sold, you've compromised your values for nothing. I've also gotten nothing out of writing, but without compromising my values. <laughs> I got a TV out of writing. That's not. Yeah, funny. I've gotten a couple of dollars. Yeah, I, I well, I've got this. I've got the the Patreon for this for this podcast earns me consistently way more money than I get from writing, and we're not making. I mean, we're making it a decent amount but certainly not enough to live on i mean i'm very happy i love all my subscribers you're all beautiful you're all gorgeous and brilliant people but you know it's not it's not enough for rent money it's more like ooh, this is nice all right you know yeah publishing income for me is a nice surprise when i get some yeah <laughs> and it makes me happy but it's not something i budget around and yeah, like it's... okay maybe i can buy a new jacket or oh thank god i can pay for my car repairs or like I, I, this time it was I paid for half a week, half of a week of my daughter's summer camp. Okay. Like, nice. yeah, like, like. All right. Th th that was the last time I got paid for writing what I did with it. It went straight into her summer camp fund. And, and I mean, because I'm coming from this as a perspective of somebody who does have a, a really good day job that pays me well, it does nice. give me a certain amount of comfort where I can just be happy with getting those occasional little checks. But it's, yeah. if I was depending on it to live on, I, I wouldn't be. No. 
that I oh god I couldn't that I couldn't handle yeah. it I could not handle the stress of it I I did briefly write for money I was a blogger for a terrible online magazine and it was incredibly stressful and draining because I was I was writing like listicles and shit you know it was a BuzzFeed type of thing and the money is bad and you're not and you're not getting to do anything really creative and it was at the end of the day when my shift was over I just didn't have the energy left to write anything that was meaningful to me and it was just fucking awful i uh also used to have a job that involved writing i was when i said that a lot of people like a lot of writers go into marketing i was one of the writers who went into marketing yeah i don't do it anymore because i couldn't write while i was a marketer the the amount of copy i had to churn out with like press releases and web copy for social media posts and all this stuff it just it used up a lot of my ability to get words on the page yeah, um, you, it's at the end of the day, you've run out of words or something. Like, I got no words left. No more words. Yeah. I'm done. And I'm going to play a video only, game. Yeah, it was only really when I left marketing, I went to an entirely different career where I spent most of the day looking at spreadsheets that yep, I was same, able to same. Yeah. look at Excel spreadsheets yeah. all day. <laughs> and then the, the writing's a nice treat. <laughs> yeah, then the writing's great. So I don't understand yeah. people who are like, writing's so hard. I hate it. I hate writing. I'm like, this is fucking great. I'm not looking at, a, at an Excel spreadsheet right now. This is awesome. Well, the only thing I have to say to those people who, who don't want, who seem to not want to actually do the work of writing is... Yeah. Get good. Yeah. You know, yeah, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. <laughs> do something else, do something anything else. else. Honestly, You'll be a Twitch streamer. Yeah, or you, or you like will, you will make money, more money, and get a, probably more prestige than I will make writing. Just go fucking be a Twitch streamer. Exactly. Do dances like, on TikTok. I don't fucking know. Honestly, anything. Garden. <laughs> like, the, the, no matter it, unless writing's the thing you want to do because you want to write, it will be the worst option available to you. Yeah, (laughs) that's what it comes down to. Yeah, you got to love it. So let's move on and talk about a specific issue related to writing and related to money. Disney must pay. I'm going to lean on you because you are raring to go about this one. Let's talk about the Disney must pay controversy. So everybody knows I'm a Disney hater, but um, this is actually part of the origin story for why I'm as much of a Disney hater as I am. Because what happened was when Disney bought out the Lucasfilm properties, one of the things they bought was the back catalog rights for novels that had been published in the Star Wars extended universe. Now, Alan Dean Foster, who's, was it Alan Dean? It was Alan Dean Foster, right? Yeah, it was Alan Dean Foster. Yeah, thank you. Alan Dean Foster, who was a, a very well-known and very well-respected author of books, some of the, the most famous books in the Star Wars Extended Universe, realized that he wasn't getting paid anymore for his writing. It just kind of surreptitiously, the payment stopped coming. So when he looked into it, um, he found out that Disney had made the decision that they owned the asset, but not the liability. So in other words... They owned the rights to publish the book, but did not own the requ- the contractual requirement to pay the author. Um, okay, then, sure. Yeah. Then it turned out they've been doing this to a bunch of people, not just him, but like a whole bunch of people that they just basically decided they didn't have to pay. And a task yeah, force was struck. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that when you when you yeah. buy when you buy the contract. You also get the responsibility. You're supposed yeah. to pay the person. That's not how this shit works. 
Yeah, the difference is that Disney can afford lawyers, whereas Alan Dean Foster couldn't. Yeah. And this is somebody who is a well-respected late career author who was a full-time author. And he was then being faced with being penuried and having his income cut off. And he's not a young man. This upset me quite a lot for yeah, a variety really of cool. reasons. That's really nasty. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like um, Disney can not afford to pay him. Mm-hmm. They can fucking afford to pay him. Yeah. It's it's honestly, it's not that much money, guys. It's so you, you shitty. Get, you could get like three seconds of Thor animation for that. Like, just pay the man, please. But uh, a task force was struck up with some cooperation from Sifwa. Um, that Sifwa really being... Science Fiction Writers of America, which is a, a, a professional organization that serves mostly American professional authors. You have to have certain publication standards to get in, and in exchange, they provide you with networking opportunities. They provide you with access to health insurance, I believe, which is something that a lot of people in the United States really need. And they they provide you with access to their forums, which includes things like Writers Beware, which is a, and also a very you good can resource. you become eligible to vote for the Nebula Awards, I think. That's right. That's another thing. Yes, you can become eligible to vote for the Nebula Awards. And Writers Beware is a very good resource. Um, oh, they're good. It's 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 a, a listing of fraudulent publishers and other scams that target new writers. And that's a useful thing to have. And I will say, especially if you're living in the United States, then access to health insurance that you might otherwise not have as an independent worker, as a, a freelancer, that's, that's an important thing. So... I'm going to probably say some negative things about CIFWA before the end of this discussion, but I yeah. do want to start off by saying that I think that they do serve an important role in the current constellation of, of publishing. And that while I don't think they're perfect at all, and I think that they should be changed pretty significantly, I do want to take a moment to start by saying there are some some things they do that are good, but their handling of the Disney Must Pay campaign wasn't one of them. So this task force was struck up. A lot of it was in collaboration with CIFWA. I'm not certain that the board of directors that eventually formed was actually officially CIFWA associated, but it, it had support from CIFWA. And it had a list of demands as far as how it wanted people to advocate for these authors to get their money back. But one of the demands it made is something that really bugged me. And it bugged me then, and it still bugs me now. And that was they demanded that people not boycott Disney. Mm. Their argument being that that would only hurt paid workers that are working for Disney if there were a boycott. I don't. It would think hurt that's... The, the the workers that Disney is not paying anyway. No, it would, they're, they're, they were saying it would hurt the <laughs> workers that Disney still was paying. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, that was their their position. But I mean, first of all, that's not necessarily true because most of the workers aren't being paid on a percentage basis on a movie. Yeah, you get but, like, here's here's the money in your contract, and that's it. Yeah, exactly. If you're a gaffer, I mean, not that Disney hires that many gaffers, but right. if you're a gaffer, you're 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 not getting percentage. You're getting your fee for your time that you're on set. You're, if you're the will, caterer, yeah. you're not yeah. you're not seeing the gross. Yeah, you're not getting royalties on this shit. And and for every person you see on a movie screen, there's ten people who are gaffers or caterers or editors or production assistants, just kind of running around and doing jobs to make movies work. So the truth is that no, the most of the workers who work on Disney movies would not be directly harmed by a boycott, unless the boycott was so powerful it drove Disney out of business, which is just not going to happen. Yeah, like <laughs> no if Disney decided they'd rather be 
if they decided they'd rather go into business than pay Alan Dean Foster, then really what's <laughs> going on in the world? But but no. So they, they asked not to boycott. And that's something I, I really strongly didn't agree with, because I think boycotts are one form of collective action that are available to people. The other is that we can also use strikes where mm. empl- where authors who are part of an organization will refuse to do work with an outlet if there is a labor dispute going on. And that mm. was also not a tool that was available to this task force because one thing that CIFWA is not is a union. Yeah. It's a professional organization, but it's not a labor organization. That's right. And that's an important distinction. And and that's what writers really need. And it's I know like because you don't have one shop, it's not like back in the day with, with steel workers where you're all going to the factory and you punch your union card. And so so people wonder how that might work. But the thing is that sectoral unions are a really old thing. They started yeah. there was an organization, they're still around. They're great people, and I would strongly encourage anybody that is in a big enough city to have a branch to connect up with them. That's the IWW. Hell yeah. Uh, which is the Industrial Workers of the World. Yeah, they've um, been around for at least a century. They rioted. They were, they're, they're cool. They're cool. And they're still on the front lines against fascists and against all kinds of the worst stuff that, ha- that is faced by poor people. In, in yeah, be a wobbly. America. The wobblies yeah, have that, a long storied history fighting fascism and totalitarianism. Yeah. Yeah, I and and so it, I, I I really want to highlight the fact that first of all the IWW are still around, and this idea yeah. comes out of the milieu of them, but we do have actual workers unions in entertainment that deal with freelancers, such as the Screen Actors Guild, the Screen Writers Guild, and IATSE Yahtzee. Right. So, like these organizations exist. They're not you, perfect, but they do exist. It is possible right. to sort of herd cats a little <laughs> bit. Like the Screenwriters Guild has gone on strike before. They they went on strike a few years ago because I'll make a long story short. Um, the age of streaming kind of fucked with the way writers were being paid royalties. Yeah, and you know, to to actually sum it up would take a super long time, and I didn't bother to do the research. But, <laughs> but there have been writer strikes there, and and a lot of people in the Screen Actors Guild also went on strike in solidarity, which is pretty fucking cool. That's right, and that that ability to take collective action is what gives people the ability to push back against all this exploitation we've been talking about. Yeah. Because we've I, I've spent we spent a long time talking about all these ways that publishing is broken. But it doesn't have to be because we can all get together and say, no, 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 the rules are different now because otherwise you don't get any writing. Yeah. So what do you think the SFWA or SIFWA could or should do about this Disney situation? What what more could we do? You mentioned a, a boycott right. of Disney. Yeah. Well, yeah, first of all, we should be boycotting Disney products until all ongoing labor disputes are concluded. The second thing is I think Disney should be listed on Writers Beware. Hmm. Um, They're a predatory publisher who aren't paying people. That's something that should be there with all the other scams. Yeah. Um, But also, now this is something that bugs me. SIFWA's got to stop honoring Disney at their own industry awards. 
Yeah, because, I've noticed that the yeah. Hugos and the Nebula Awards every year give out a couple of awards or nominees nominations to Disney products to individual episodes of The Mandalorian have been nominated mm-hmm. for for like screenwriting or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I let Disney the things get nominated for shit. I left the Hugos alone here because they're fan awards and right. that's yeah, that's a little yeah, different. Yeah. But but the Bradbury which is offered through the Nebula Awards and is a SIFWA award. That's 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 different. That's an industry award. And SIFWA could just say no, Disney products aren't qualified for these this year because of the ongoing labor dispute. Yeah. But there in, since 2020, since the start of Disney Must Pay, there have been a total of 6 nominees of Disney episodes for a Bradbury Award. There was an episode Ooh. of The Mandalorian, an episode of Loki, the film Shang-Chi and the Legend of the 10 Rings. The entirety of season one of WandaVision, which actually won the Bradbury Award, the the animated feature Encanto, and then this year an episode of Andor. Yeah. So in one year, in 2021, which was the year where there was the most actual activity on Disney Must Pay, four of the nominees for the Bradbury Award were Disney products. Oh, God. And like, it's just like... That's pathetic. I, with the Who Goes, okay. Yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah. Fans vote for what they vote for. It's it's an open nomination. Anybody can vote. But with the Nebulas, where there's some control, you would expect at least enough solidarity to say, while we're in the middle of a labor dispute, we're not going to be heaping accolades on this studio. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it could at least get some attention, or at least... I, I don't know if it'd hurt Disney or anything. Oh, it wouldn't. <laughs> but I probably wouldn't. But I do think it would send a really good warning to sci-fi writers saying like hey these guys won't fucking pay you that's right be careful or at the very least when you're negotiating your contract don't depend on getting royalties from these people negotiate just like a really really big fat flat fee Mm -hmm. because they will not pay you royalties at the very least yeah it it could be a warning to do that when you're negotiating your payment with them and 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 that's the thing disney doesn't care about the nebula awards no. I, I, I haven't looked, but I'd be shocked if a representative of the company showed up to accept the award. No. I mean, they get um, accused of like way worse things anyway. Several yeah. several major political leaders are like accusing them of stealing children's adrenochrome or whatever the fuck right now. <laughs> so I yeah. don't think they'd worry too much about this little nerd award. But <laughs> but it, it would, as you were saying, and you were exactly correct, it would communicate a message to the writing community that lets them know that this is a predator in their midst. Yeah. It's showing solidarity. Yeah. And I know I know that sounds harsh to the people who are working on those products. I've heard very good things about Andor. I've heard it's pretty good. I haven't watched it because it's Star Wars and I don't really watch that yeah. anymore. But yeah. but I've heard good things about it. It might be a very good show, but you know what? Maybe it's a show to visit after the labor disputes are resolved. Yeah. And and with apologies to the people who are making it, but they're working with a company that is screwing over their coworkers. Yeah. You know, so. All right. But yeah, <laughs> the other thing that, and this is now getting into things that fans could do, but Ooh, you can just okay. not put Disney things into panel topics at conventions. Yeah. So like, don't, do a Marvel panel. Just Ooh. don't do a panel about trailers or uh, about post-credit sequences. Just exclude it from the conversation 
except when you're talking about the fact it doesn't pay its employees. Yeah. Talk about the exploitation of graphic artists. Talk about the 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 writers who aren't getting their their royalties. Yeah. Talk about those labor issues and the and how these big companies that are predating on artists are like how they're going about that predatory process. Because yeah. that sort of spreading of awareness is about the only thing that people really need to know about these about these companies right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think every every sci-fi fantasy writer should know that you need to be aware of Disney because they're not going to mm-hmm. pay you they're not going to honor their contract to you. Yep. And and Disney's just a case study here. I don't want to say they're the only like they're not the only bad player. Of course <laughs> There's not. There's so many bad players. But they're um, they're but... a big one and as an industry leader they mm-hmm. have the power to set an industry standard. Exactly. So the idea that this major, major company would just straight up say, yeah, we're not going to pay you. That is deeply troubling. It is. And the, the pettiness of it is part of what makes it so troubling because they have, what they, they have the money to pay Alan Dean Foster. They can fucking afford it. Yeah. What they owed him was not a lot of money for Disney. It was a lot of money for an elderly author. Yeah. A lot of money for him. Just like pocket change for them. It's fucking. Yeah you know coins between the couch cushions for disney now i understand eventually he did get paid but not everybody yeah and i and i think that was because he had a lawyer i i don't think it yeah. was because the disney must pay task force no. wrote some tweets i think wrote some I think tweets ultra- hashtag and- disney must pay in between saying oh man did you see baby yoda on the latest mandalorian he's so cute oh my gosh. motherfuckers it made me so <sighs> mad to see a couple of people who were on that task force in between writing about it, also posting like animated gifs and screenshots of Baby Yoda, I'm like motherfuckers, yeah, motherfuckers. It's just you, so, you guys, come on, come on. Just literally dancing Funko Pop. It's just embarrassing. When I was a child, I loved Star Wars, but that's the thing. It was when I was a child. It's it's weird because I remember the the 90s where it was kind of cool and fashionable to hate mm-hmm. Disney and make a lot of edgy parodies of mickey mouse and they were really corny and hokey and banksy shit but now i'm like mm. you know what banksy is cooler than these people as cringe <laughs> as banksy yep. is as incredibly cringe as he is he he's right and i just when i when i talk about hackery that's the things that companies like disney and warner brothers do or electronic arts in the video game sphere that's yeah. that's hackery. That's when you yeah. stop caring about. That's why you end up with things like Elsa Face happening, because you focus group everything to the point where you go, "Nope, that's the face we should put on this protagonist." Not is that the face that this character in this piece of art should have, but just just this is the one that that focus tested best. Yeah, and I just find it very soulless. Yeah, and then I see stuff like that that horrible piece of advertising. I don't even know what they were thinking. Where Taika Waititi and Tessa Thompson were taking the piss out of the anime the, the graphics. Oh, that the, made me so mad. Movie. That was so crummy. Yeah. They were just and laughing at at the bad admittedly bad computer graphics yeah. in their movie, but that was that came out at the same time as a big report came out that these mm-hmm. artists were working under horrible working conditions for very crappy money and just being set yeah. up to fail because under the conditions they were working, no one could make a could make a good product. That's right. And, and it just felt really mean spirited and like punching down on some computer animator who's putting in 16 hour crunch days. Mm-hmm. 
just and getting paid dog shit. So, so I did actually see that Thor movie. My daughter, I promised a movie. And, you crossed uh, the picket this... line, you son of a bitch. Well, well. So Simon. here's the thing. Actually, it's kind Simon. of your fault because it's kind of your fault because I asked you if I could take her to see, see Nope, and you said <laughs> you said, "Oh, I don't think Nope would be good for a kid her age." It's <laughs> and my the two fault options. and Jordan Peele's my fault and Jordan Peele's fault. <laughs> the two options playing at the drive through, the drive-in, which is where we went, <laughs> were either Nope or the Thor movie. And, and I, Nope would traumatize a child 100%. <laughs> she liked me. Very Megan. good. Um, <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. But yeah, Nope was a little bit harsher than Megan. <laughs> nope, nope was, yeah, Nope was not as fun. But, uh, but, um, Nope was great, but it was very upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I love Nope. That was one of my favorite yeah, movies. The, last scene, year. the scene in the thing. Oh, fuck. Oh, my gosh. Oh, fuck. Or just, oh, yeah. He's or just bad. The, the squeak, He's bad in there. The host and the people inside start screaming. Oh, the sounds. They're bad sounds. I don't like them. Yeah. They're upsetting. Yeah, that that was a very good movie. I love it. Oh, fuck. You don't that even was, that see was one of anything my... happening. You just know like, oh, this yeah. is bad. I don't like this. But no, the Thor movie did have terrible special effects. It's true. But you got to take a step back and look at the, the situation that led to that, which is that all the animators that are working for Disney are in a constant st- state of crunch. Disney is notoriously indecisive about their designs. They come back for redesigns regularly. They expect rapid turnaround on everything, which means that renders are are sloppy. It's exactly the same problem we're seeing a lot of of AAA AAA video game space, at least a lot of really bad AAA video games, is that they're being expected to do too much in too little time and they're burning out. Right. These are the things people need to know about these big media conglomerates. If If you're at a convention, this is the stuff that you should be communicating to people. Not, oh yeah, did you catch that Easter egg? Yeah. Well, so the guy in the bee suit... Yeah, it's frustrating because as much as the field of sci-fi fantasy fiction has gotten professionalized, mm-hmm. it hasn't um, the idea that this is labor and that there's any kind of way we can stick up for ourselves and negotiate that hasn't been communicated with it in in the right. way that it might be in a profession in a in a real professional environment. And and that's one thing I really want. Whoops, ow. Oh my goodness. Remember when I said I might be ambushed? <laughs> yeah, did, did your cat come? Did your little kitty come? Yes, Oreo is here. You He's on my shoulder shoulders friend? now. Yes. I have a shoulder yes. friend. Um, yes. Suddenly, shoulder friend. Um, yes. <laughs> He's a good boy. It's there's it's one thing to to recognize that, you know, like that you're a professional, but it's another thing altogether to recognize that you're a worker. Right. And I think that's oh yes. That's what I want for artists to recognize is to realize that as long as we live in a capitalist economy, an artist will always be a worker. Right. And as long as we're doing art, that's that's where our allegiances should be. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. I think I think why don't we wind it down because we've been talking for about an hour, but in conclusion, uh fuck Disney. Fuck <laughs> Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda's the devil. Fuck him. And power then there's power in a union. <laughs> there's power in a union. That's right. Before we go, is there anything that you would like to promote? Yeah, actually, I do have an article out recently. It's in the most recent issue of Seize the Press. Ooh. And it's a lengthy review of one of the possible endings of the FromSoft video game Elden Ring, where I'm digging into how Elden Ring constructs economies and the relationship between economy and faith using a fair bit of the theories of an Italian philosopher named Giorgio Agamben, 
So it's a fun piece. It's a fun piece that is a bit of a head spin, but that also gets into the thorny question of what parts of Elden Ring were written by George R. R. Martin. Ooh, interesting. That's in Seize the Press. All right. I will I will look for that and try and include a link to it in... Oh, there it is. Dest- Destituent Power and, and Divine Economy in Elden Ring. That's All right, I'll one. put a link to that at the bottom <laughs> of the show notes. It, it's, a, it's a fun one. It's a bit of a lengthy okay. read, though. I'll warn people. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. That sounds great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about money. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, please head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittystasis.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittystasis.com. you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Steezes production. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs> <laughs>